Hey, hello there. Welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Alicia. And I'm Charlotte. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to better understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and just women living in this world. Yeah, and you can find or follow us on social media. We have an Instagram and a Facebook and a TikTok, which are all at From Skirts to Scrubs. We also have Twitter, which is at FSTS underscore podcast. You can also check out our website for more information on our episodes, our show notes, our sources, and more at FromSkirtsToScrubs.com. And the website's been updated, so please go check it out. Yes. And you can also subscribe to our podcast, leave us a rating and review. Apple Podcasts is a great way to do that. But you can also go on any podcasting app you like. And again, if you go to our website, you can access all of those very easily. Yeah. And welcome to episode 46, everyone. I hope everyone has enjoyed episode 45 and the start to our season four. And you're ready to just keep trucking along through this new season. So I thought that we would continue down this little fun historical path that we've been going so far in the season with a little adventure through science and history. So in this episode, we will be detailing the discovery of fertilization, or to put it plainly, how babies are made. And (laughs) you may be thinking, well, it, it was probably obvious to ancient people, you know, that sexual intercourse between a man and a woman resulted in a baby. And I would say yes to that. But I would also say no. (laughs) So this episode is more about like the deeper scientific understanding that led to the discovery of fertilization. It's a very fun race about the ultimate race. And I think with that, Alicia, do you know anything other than literally how it works? (laughs) No, I don't know. I know about how babies are made. Yes. I know about fertilization, but I don't know like why or how people came to understand it at all. Well, then we'll just jump into it then. Let's do it. All right. So we're going to start with what we know now. So it's going to be a little sex ed 101 lesson for all of our listeners on the basics of fertilization. So this is exactly what all the old men in history are like trying to figure out is this, this right here. All right. So fertilization, this is how it works. Females contain ovaries that hold follicles with eggs in them. Males have testicles that have sperm and produce them. In a healthy female with a normal reproductive anatomy, she'll ovulate like halfway through her menstrual cycle. And ovulation is basically when the follicle and the ovaries go pop and a little egg flies out of it. Okay. And I mean, it literally like flies out. It shoots out. And for context, the ovary is not attached to your uterus or your fallopian tubes, more more specifically. At the end of the fallopian tubes, there are these little finger-like processes that are kind of like the anemone that Nemo lives in from Finding Nemo. Like, that's what they look like. And when the egg Mm. goes pop out of the ovary, the little fingers of the fallopian tubes just snatch it up. They snatch up that egg, and it goes and sits in the fallopian tube and just patiently waits there for a little sperm to come by. But if that sperm never comes, Then the uterus sheds its lining and the egg falls away with it. Bye-bye, egg. But if that person who has ovulated has experienced some type of sexual intercourse event with no protection and the sperm has entered the vagina, this is where (laughs) the magic starts to happen. In this case, the semen from the male enter 
the vagina. And it's not just like two or three little sperm in the semen. There are literally millions and millions of little sperm in the semen. And when they enter the vaginal canal, they'll start swimming and swimming and swimming with their little, little tails. And along the way, it's like a slaughter for the sperm. They're just like dying left and right. They're racing to oh, get God. to the egg. <laughs> it's like, it's also, do you ever see the movie 1917? No, bro. That's so specific. <laughs> it's like a World War One movie. And there's this scene where the main character is like sprinting alongside the trenches. And there's like soldiers everywhere running. And they're like falling and dying. And he's just like sprinting and he's falling. But he gets up and he keeps running. That is like what the head sperm is doing in this case. He's just like, like he is just <laughs> going after it. And he gets so lucky and he makes it all the way up to the fallopian tube. And there lays the beautiful, magnificent egg just waiting along for it. So the little sperm looks up at the egg. And this egg is 10 million times the size of the sperm. Like, it's so <laughs> big. The sperm's like, okay then. And it rushes head first at the egg. And when it makes like contact with the egg's surface, it goes through like a bunch of different scientific reactions that we're not going to get into. And the sperm basically like meshes into the egg wall. And then it's genetic material that's within the sperm goes into the egg and makes contact with the egg's genetic material. And thus, fertilization has happened. And now life will begin. So that's, that's fertilization, my friends. Nice. And not a very scientific way of explaining it, but like you get the gist of it. And that's what we're trying to figure out right here. And of course, that's like the ideal way it happens, the perfect way. But like sometimes the sperm doesn't make it, you know, people don't get pregnant every time. Or sometimes ovulation doesn't happen for certain women who have certain processes going on. But to keep it simple, that is what this big mystery is we're going to talk about, at least for all these old physicians, philosophers, and scientists across time. With that, we're going to talk about various theories of conception, fertilization, whatever you want to call it now. Okay. I want to talk about some various theories that have pertained to, you know, how babies are made. But honestly, there's like no particularly strict chronological order I'm going in. I'm just kind of starting with the big theories and talking about some specific ones and then moving on. Because history jumps all over the place and it'd be really hard to go chronologically. Mm -hmm. So to start plainly, there was just like this one really big theory in general that was this one starts really at the beginning of time. It's tied to no particular ancient civilization. But it was kind of like a common belief for many. And this was the idea that women were just a barren field. Like the uterus is just full of tumbleweeds, basically. Oh, yes. they I thought did not that expect women, that. Like provided, gave, supplemented absolutely nothing to the child. It was all about the man's semen because they knew what semen was oh. because, you know, it was obvious to them. You could see it. They thought that the man's semen would sow the field per se and a baby would be created how exactly unsure they would say but to them like a woman could not create a child without the help of a man so obviously her contribution was just to be the vessel no more no less she was just there to hold the baby kind of is what they thought hmm. yeah yeah so that was a very common idea for a very long that sounds time right and then later like jumping ahead a lot to like the Middle Ages time, which is where a lot of this history happens. Very common idea was that things women looked at during pregnancy affected the, the baby, like what the baby would look like or be 
upon birth. So her thoughts, her dreams, what she ate, what kind of sex positions they did that led to conception. This would affect the child. Yeah. (laughs) And there are stories that like, if the pregnant woman looked at a strawberry, then the baby would have a port wine stain across the face. If she ate a red rose, then she would have a boy, but a white rose would be a girl. Why would she eat a rose? (laughs) Some of it, they like thought that, you know, like the red rose would be a boy. So like they would do it on purpose to try to create these outcomes. You know, you know, there was an idea that if the baby was conceived with the woman on top, then the child would be born (laughs) disfigured, intellectually disabled or a monster. And Mm. this like idea that what the woman did affected the baby so strongly was it came to this point that there was this famous story in the 1700s of a woman who had given birth to rabbits. To rabbits, literally rabbits. So during this woman's birth, she birthed dead rabbit parts and there was no baby, just just little rabbit bits. And the midwife and the physician were like shooketh. And they wrote letters to England, to the Royal Society of Physicians, And people came across the nation to come and see her birth rabbits, like literally give birth to rabbits. And over time, she gave birth to 17 rabbits. Wait, what? Yes. Yes. And the woman would tell the physician that during her pregnancy, she saw a glimpse of a rabbit and wanted to chase it. So she chased it, but eventually it escaped. And after that, she was like obsessed with rabbits. It's all she could think about all the time. And she would eat them. And every meal, like rabbit stew, rabbit soup, rabbit pizza, I don't know, like everything. She would eat it all the time. So she thought, and so did scientists, that this must be the cause of all these rabbit births. What do you think was actually going on, Alicia? What? <laughs> was she having a bunch of miscarriages? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, okay. I was like, bro, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, I know. So eventually she ended up confessing that she had lost her child early in pregnancy. And then had, instead of like telling someone, she decided to take dead rabbit bits and put it up her vagina. Oh, and ugh. then she would fake. Yeah. And then she would fake contractions and like bird these rabbits, basically. She was later. Why? I don't know, man. She was later found guilty for fraud and put in jail because of this. But this is just like an example, I think, of how far like this idea that a woman like thinking about something or seeing something during pregnancy went and that people actually believed her for a very long time. They didn't even catch her until I think they had taken her to like an observational hospital and she was caught asking a nurse or someone to bring her dead rabbits basically. So she could like keep up the hoax. So that's how, but that's how far people went to believe that like what a woman did during pregnancy led to whatever happened to that child. Another story of this is that one woman got pregnant while her husband was away sailing for four years. People accuse her of adultery. She claimed that she had a very visual and realistic dream of having sex with her husband soon after she was pregnant. And it was a miracle and everyone believed her. And she was not tried for adultery. What? Yeah. What? They believed yes. her? Yes. Dang. That is how little they knew about what was going on. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I told you like right before this one that they didn't think women contributed anything. To the baby, and now I'm saying, well, they're, the way they act affects the baby. So eventually, yeah. you know, they gave up on the empty field theory and moved on to women contributing to pregnancy. And this is where 
more ideas slowly start to creep up about how the mother and father of a child contributed to creating their baby. So now we're going to jump back in time and go through some of our favorite ancient physicians and their thoughts on how babies were born. Yay. So starting with Hippocrates, (laughs) he thought that the embryo drew breath and moisture from the mother, allowing them to develop circulation, bones, and a belly, which makes sense. Because if you think back to the four humors theory, women were supposed to be like wet and Mm -hmm. cold. So for an embryo to to draw moisture from the mom adds up with Hippocrates' like view of women. Aristotle Mm -hmm. believed that life, like all life, not just humans, all life, was divided into the bloodless and everybody else. So blood... (laughs) Yeah. Oh, so bloodless was like insects, basically. And he thought they just reproduced spontaneously, just like poof, insect baby. And then for everyone else, aka like mammals, humans, all the other creatures of the world, mating was very important. And this was something, you know, they could witness. They could see dogs in heat. They knew like how their livestock breeded, things like that. And Aristotle believed that women when it came to this, played a large role in making a child through menstruation. So he argued, he argued that menstrual blood gave like the matter for a baby to be made. Hmm. The menstrual blood was the clay, basically. Was the baby, yeah. yeah. Well, it wasn't the baby. It was just like the substance of the baby. If that makes sense. It doesn't, but I guess it did to him. So that's fine. You'll see. We'll get there. So at the time, like this kind of made sense to them because women cannot get pregnant unless you menstruate for one. And when you do get pregnant, you stop menstruating. So they were like, obviously, menstruation has something to do with pregnancy, which, you know, they're not wrong in that regard. They're not wrong. That they got. He thought that menstrual blood was the matter. And then he thought men's semen. Once again, they didn't know what sperm was. They just knew what semen was. They believed that men's semen was what shaped the matter that the blood had created. So it's kind of like menstrual blood is the clay and semen is the hands that shape it in a way into the baby. Okay. And then to add on to that, Aristotle also believed that only men had semen because only men were hot enough, shout out to the four humors again, to create semen in the first place. So that was his explanation for male versus female differences in semen galen on the other hand thought that women did have semen oh so you're gonna love this one okay his general theory in like all of medicine like one of the you know the grounds he stood on was that all body parts had a purpose like everything why like why would god create a human and all these things inside of them for them to have no purpose was his belief he said it was wasteful you know he was a devout christian and such and he like why would god be so wasteful so everything had to have a purpose which makes you think like what would galen think of the appendix at this time (laughs) don't know i know i was thinking about that (laughs) like he is welcome to figure it out for scientists today but yeah so in his mind galen was like well men must have an orgasm for sex to produce a child so obviously women must too because orgasms have to have a purpose so if women orgasm, that means they have to have a purpose. Oh. So Galen literally wrote to the whole medical world that orgasms were essential to produce children. So yeah, so soon after, all across Europe and the Arab world, 
Doctors and medical documents would give advice for foreplay and how to help women achieve orgasm. I do love that. I think that's so fun. Very forward thinking. Not what I expected you to say. Um, Obviously, that's not true. But later on, they like Mm -hmm. went on to discover the clitoris and that it had like more to do with pleasure than reproduction. And that theory was discounted eventually. That was Galen's. But it was a huge theory. It was in Mm -hmm. for a while. Across a lot of the world. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a German theologist in the 1200s. So like shooting forward towards the Middle Ages more. His name was Albert Magnus. And he believed mm-hmm. that women had their own seeds. And so like kind of the idea also that women have, have semen. And when men's semen would meet the female semen inside the woman, it would coagulate like cottage cheese vibes. Like it would just be sitting in there. Oh, coagulated semen all mixed together. And then, yeah. And then when the woman would eventually menstruate, her menstrual blood would mix with that coagulated semen and it would provide nourishment for the baby. And then baby would develop. So like the baby couldn't be created until the menstrual blood met the semen and gave them nourishment. Okay. Yeah. That was his whole theory. So his was women had yeah. okay. Go so we have him. a lot of like menstrual blood, semen going on. But they kind of have like the ideas a little right. They understand that these like bodily fluids have maybe something to do with childbirth, but they don't know why or how or like they're like, where the heck do babies come from? Right. But yeah, they're confused. There's they're this confused. one really cool one that I um I've been excited to talk about this for ages. This is a little bit more of like a modern anthropological study. So at a time, I don't, I don't actually remember when exactly this was, but it was recently, not like super recently, but it wasn't Middle Ages, what I mean. Scientists went to the islands of Papua New Guinea and they discovered a completely different idea of conception than any other culture that they had heard of at the time. This is fun. I'm excited for this. Okay. So. The idea went like this. Every person inside of them had a soul n- named the Baloma. And when you died, your soul went and lived on the island of Toma. And there your soul would live with all their souls and they would live like a full life. So when you died, your soul went to a different island and lived a full life there. Then when it was time for that soul to die, it would walk to the beach and it would shed its skin to the point where only a little embryo would remain. These little embryos of the dying souls would then go into the ocean and become spirit children. All right. And then back on the mainland island where there's the humans living, women would bathe in the sea and she felt a little fishy or like a plant brush against her. (laughs) It was actually the embryo from the old soul entering her body. And that is how she would become pregnant. So that was like their whole idea of how conception worked. Super interesting. Oh, yes. that's sweet. So there's like a couple caveats that scientists were like, what do you mean? This is what you think? Like, what about this, this, and this? So to go over that, there was no idea of paternity in these communities because the idea that sexual mm. intercourse led to a child was not like within their realm of thought or within their culture. So the father, the word father actually just meant husband of my mother there wasn't like a personal connection between child and father it was a connection between Hmm. 
you know, you to your mom who also was with this man. And in that way, the whole community cared for children together. So like everyone cared for everyone's children because all the men, you know, didn't think that they were directly related to any of them. And you may say like, okay, well then how did they rationalize that virgin women did not get pregnant? And they would say that sex was performed in order to widen the vagina and only a widened vagina could the embryo from the ocean enter. If that makes sense. Oh, you see? yeah. Yeah. Clever. So they found a way around it basically. Yes, exactly. Interesting. So if you never had sex and your vagina would be too small and you could never be impregnated by that little ocean spirit child. And then they would say, okay, well, like how did these women not become pregnant all the time? Because there was no idea of contraception. There was no idea that sex led to child. They would kind of like be with many men in the community. There was like, there's no idea of like being with one partner to create your children. And guess, guess how, like they're having tons of unprotected sex and, but there's not tons of pregnancies. Like they have like a normal pregnancy rate. It's not like they're like one bam, 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 getting pregnant. Ah, I don't know. <laughs> it's I don't super know. interesting. So actually a large part of their diet on the islands was wild yams. And it turns out that yams can contain a plant-based estrogen that can be converted to progesterone. So oh, they would interesting. Eat- so they have like natural contraception. Basically. Yes. Like unknowingly, at mm. least to these like anthropologists who were talking to these islanders, that unknowingly these yams were working much like oral birth control pills, basically, which is so crazy. That is crazy. Yeah. So. That one's really fun. Um, and I'm sure there's many more stories and theories. But at this point, we're going to move on to the scientific race of how they discovered how conception actually works. All right. Any questions so okay. far, Alicia? How did the men rationalize that the babies looked like them, kind of? You know, that was always something that in all the papers I read and like articles and stuff, they were never able to wrap their heads around why children look like their parents basically like at least until like the end of this story that we're talking through but it was always like a big question like if this is the theory then why does the child look like xyz you know they it was almost like they knew that they should answer that question but they didn't (laughs) but they just kept ignoring it got it got it it. at least that's the vibe i was getting from it at least okay so as we can tell from many of these stories, this idea that men and women like do something to produce a child was like floating around in scientific literature. Like everyone was trying to figure it out. It was like the big question of the day. Like how the heck are babies made? They were like, what did they give? They don't know. Scientists knew the men had semen, but what was in the semen? What was the magic sauce? What did the women contribute? <laughs> what's in the sauce like they're like what is the Krabby Patty recipe like they don't know <laughs> it was funny <laughs> this all kind of starts in the late 1500s is where we're beginning this last leg of our story and it started with a man by the name of William Harvey Harvey was a medical researcher who mainly studied circulation in the body and the heart he actually hypothesized the idea that blood ran through some type of thing that was basically arteries and veins before he even saw them. He was just like, this is probably how it works. And then he died, I think, before they discovered it, but he was onto something. 
And he also, aside from his heart experience, decided to run some experiments on animals to look at their reproductive parts. And many people at this time had already started studying chicken eggs. Uh, The ancient Egyptians actually figured out like how to incubate chicken eggs. So it was like a good source of scientific experimentation when it came to reproduction a lot of the time. And so people already Mm -hmm. had been studying chicken eggs and how the embryo developed within an egg outside of the chicken's body. But Harvey decided to study deer to look for an egg within the like female animal's body. And he really wanted to go and find this growing embryo within the mom, like the mom deer after mating. So he would do this. He would wait for like female deer to mate and then he would kill them and then he would look inside them to look for an embryo. But unfortunately, like he'd be looking and like he wouldn't see an embryo, especially if it was early after mating, probably because mm-hmm. it was super tiny, <laughs> you know? So mm-hmm. it wouldn't be until like, Weeks after mating of him, you know, putting the timeline out from when he would dissect the moms that he would see these embryos. But from these experiments, Harvey theorized that female organs actually did not contribute to conception and that the egg was probably just formed through thought. Like the female was just like, well, I think about oh, it, bro. Egg. Dang. He was like so on it. And then he suddenly was like really hot. He was like so, he was so close. Like he was like looking, looking for embryos. He was like, eggs probably have something to do with conception. Like he was so close, but he was not able to physically see the egg, which kind of ruined the theory for him. But he like was the start of the idea that it, it was possible. Like that the egg had something to do with conception and this idea leaked into scientific society at the time. So 25 years after Harvey published his discoveries, a medical student by the name of Swammerdam, such a fun name, became interested in conception through one of his mentors' guidance, basically. This Dutch medical student decided to look at insects, actually, in search of an egg. He dove, like, head first in studying insects. This man, like, finished medical school and then devoted his life to studying insects all i know is his parents were not happy but he really loved insects and he was actually fun fact the one to discover that the king bee was actually the queen bee because he would he dissected the bees and found ovaries swammerdam what even i I thought that was fun he saw little ovaries inside the little bee i guess he actually studied like a ton of different insects and concluded that insects, and therefore all of life, he thought, produced by either laying eggs or having eggs, which mm. you know would later develop into whatever species they came from. And this discovery, with like the real evidence he provided through his experimentation, changed science at the time. As I mentioned before, Aristotle like believed that insects simply appeared. He was like, they just appear. And Swammerdam like brought his dissections. And said, this is actually how it happens. There are eggs inside these animals. And from the eggs, there are more animals. Swammerdam also had a little friendo from med school. His name was Steno. I think that's how you say it. And Steno also made instrumental discoveries pertaining to eggs in conception. Because he had, he was really into studying dogfish and egg-laying rays, where he witnessed that the testicles of an animal contain eggs and that the arm of a uterus opens into the abdomen like a duct. So he basically saw that ovaries had eggs 
and there was uterus with fallopian tubes, kind of. And he saw it's in like female animals. So he concluded that human women must be the same. And he declared that he had no doubt that women also had eggs, even though nobody could see them at the time. Medical school did these people go to? This is some groundbreaking yeah, I know, stuff. They were really on to something. Okay. And then in 1672, there was a scientist by the name of de Graff, and he published the book, A New Treatise Concerning the Generative Organs of Women. In this text, basically discredited many theories of women's anatomy and purpose, but most importantly, it detailed that all animals have been observed to have eggs that enter the uterus and resulted in an embryo. So he was like, guys, the eggs are creating babies in all animals. Like this happens in all animals, basically. And many scientists at the time actually laughed at this idea. And it came to a point where DeGraff had to stand up for women and he stated, Nature had her mind on the job when generating the female as well as generating the male. Which I thought that was a fun little quote. It made me stop because like that statement's huge in a, in a society, in a time for thousands of years where scientifically, religiously, socially, like women were inferior to men. And here is this scientist mm-hmm. who just publishes huge scientific work publicly saying this is not the case. You know, men or women mm-hmm. also were created with a purpose. and. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks, DeGraff. He also believed that women's testicles, which is what they call them, performed the same function oh. as a bird's ovaries, you know, where they house the eggs. So he renamed, okay. like, yeah, the testicles of women to ovaries. So I've been saying ovaries the whole time, but, like, up until then, they would call women's ovaries also testicles because they're, like, men have testicles. Women have mm. these things inside them that also look like testicles. So they're both testicles. But no, he said they're ovaries, and the structures were renamed appropriately. Nice. Of course, however... With, like, only the human eye, they literally could still not see eggs. Like, at this point, they're saying eggs are how babies are made, but they could not see a literal egg within a human, like, with on dissecting, like, human ovaries and such. So, one thing that DeGraff did was he couldn't see the egg, but he could see something else in the ovaries that made him believe that he thought were eggs at the time. What do you think he was seeing, Alicia? Follicles? He was seeing follicles. So. He actually was studying rabbits at the time and he would dissect the rabbit ovaries after mating and he would see these like swollen ruptured follicles, which when I explained fertilization at the beginning, the egg pops its way out of the follicle during ovulation. So he was seeing these ruptured follicles. He couldn't see the eggs though. But he did observe that if there were five follicles that had burst, there were either five or less embryos. So there was never more but there was always equal amount or less. And he knew, therefore, whatever was in the follicle was contributing to the embryo. So we're doing good. We're doing good. In the mid-1670s, the egg theory of fertilization became the dominant theory. And a French publication even wrote, the view that man, as well as other animals, are formed from eggs is something that is now so widespread there are hardly any new philosophers who do not accept this. And thus, the scientific idea of the ovist emerged. So people who believe that eggs created life were called ovists. Oh, okay. Where do you think we're going now? Spermist. Mm-hmm. Wait, Adam. No, you're oh, really? we're going to the spermist. <laughs> so what about the sperm? Well, one major scientific advancement had to occur for sperm to even enter the picture here. Alicia, what do you think that was? 
Like, what do you think was in the microscope? Yes. yes, you're you're so right. The microscope. So nobody can actually be sure, like, when the microscope was invented. It was probably around the early 1500s, but it didn't increase in use more until about the 1600s. And it wasn't until the 1670s that it became major in our story here. So at that time, a merchant by the name of Anthony Van Leeuwenhoek, one day he randomly was like, I'm going to take some pond water from outside my house. I'm going to take it to my little microscope and I'm going to look at it. Why he did this, we don't know. But what he, like this moment literally is huge in science. He looked through the microscope and he saw thousands of tiny little creatures inside the pond water. And he saw these little creatures and called them animalcules. So we have these little animals, which are, you know, the bacteria and the little tiny life. (laughs) That is what it was. But he called them animalcules. And his amazement, he sent a letter of his findings to the Royal Society in England. And they responded, requesting Leeuwenhoek to use his microscope to examine saliva, pile, sweat, mm. etc. What do you think they meant by etc.? Oh, semen. Yes. He took that as, okay, they want me to examine semen. He was very, Leeuwenhoek was very uncomfy by this request. But eventually, like after time and studying his animalcules for a while, he came around to studying his own semen. Oh my God, that's so uncomfortable. But to his amazement, he looked at it and he saw what he said was thousands of animalcules, some the size of a grain of sand. And he observed these tiny creatures within his semen as having these long tails that allowed them to move around, swim around. But of course, he didn't like look at these tiny animals and think, yes, this is sperm. Like, this is life, you know? Instead, he saw them as just little animals literally that lived within semen much like how his tiny animals lived within his pond water it became this theory that sperm were merely animals or worms even that lived inside semen and that's actually where the name spermatozoa comes from spermatozoa means animals of semen which is stuck even today because that's what little sperms are called now too but so how did scientists like ever start to connect the dots here they have the sperm. They don't know what's going on. And then the ovus, we think there's eggs. They're like, what the heck? The merchant Hook soon became like a scientist because he was, you know, studying these animalcules and his little animalcules and his semen. And he soon began to experiment on dogs where he would observe the inside of a female dog after mating. Equipped with his little microscope, he was able to observe thousands of tiny animals, the semen and the sperm, within the female body now. And he concluded that these animalcules had something to do with conception. And it was them, not the egg, that created human life. He he took us all the way back. The spermist. He he rolled back the wheels of time and said that (laughs) women are once again just fields to nourish the baby. Women have no contribution. Mm. It's just these little animalcules inside of semen that create life. And he claims that there was claims that through his studies of dogs, uterus, and fallopian tubes, he never once saw an egg. So obviously, sperm were the main component, thus creating the spermists of society. Mm. So for a long time, it was like this battle between ovus and spermists, declaring which one created life. Ovis would argue that everyone knew that life came from eggs. Look at chickens. Like, everyone could see that. 
They also stated that eggs True. were very large. They had so much room in them. And obviously it was very safe for a baby to grow inside the egg, which is not what happens. But like, that's what they thought. Yeah. And due to these theories, like the, the, the Ovis, the Ovis had strong evidence basically to back them up. So for most of the 1700s, the common idea was held by the Ovis, but the spermists still existed and they still defended themselves and many agreed with them because they loved, for one, how the spermist theory focused on men. It, you know, it brought the mm-hmm. world back to spotlight for men instead of women. So they loved that. And they even took it a point further, which leads to my last little tidbit of today. So for all of time, honestly, up to this point, haven't mentioned it till now. They never actually called fertilization what humans do to create babies, reproduction. That just like wasn't a word. Instead, they called it generation. Not reproduction, generation. It was this idea that humans did not generate humans. Instead, life had been preformed by God at the beginning of time. And so when Lewin Hook discovered sperm, he added and like supplemented this theory that everyone is preformed by God by claiming to see a little head, shoulders, and hips within the sperm cells. So he believed that within sperm laid a tiny little human. And this idea that humans were preformed by God and those tiny, li- those tiny humans lived within the sperm allowed for spermists to like take a hold on society for a bit because it tied in with Christian theology in a way. Because the theory said that Adam was created yeah, by God um, as the first man and Adam's sperm had the next generation. And then that sperm had the next generation in it. And then that sperm had the next generation in it. So it was like this like Russian nesting okay. dolls situation where like the big oh, doll had okay. a little doll who had a little doll who had a little doll, but sperm sounds like a lot. And it hurts your brain to think about. But at the time, like they didn't know the earth was extremely old. They only thought it was like a couple generations old because they weren't like studying yeah. ancient peoples with the materials we have now. So to them, it made sense. They were like, obviously, we only go back like four generations. Like the sperm can hold that. <laughs> you know? Okay, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it even came to a point where people believed there was male sperm and female sperm. And there would be little boys and little girls inside the sperm. And they would play around in the semen before they fought to get to the uterus, basically. Okay. Yes. But, you know, as I explained earlier, the act of getting to the egg is slaughter for sperm. Like, only one sperm makes it, man. They all die on the way. And Ovis, you know, Ovis saw this. People knew that there were millions of sperm and semen at this point. And Ovis said, okay, well, if you think that all of humankind is in sperm, then why would God literally create mass murder, like genocide of sperm, if he put all of human life in sperm? Because millions of these tiny humans would die with each ejaculation. So instead, Ovis claimed, okay, well, if we're going to believe in this pre-generation theory, then everyone, all like tiny humans live in eggs actually not the sperm and then mm. this is where swammerdam comes back in swammerdam doesn't help in this situation swammerdam! he's not helpful now he was really helpful before because he said okay well he's studying his little insects still he loves his insects and he's studying caterpillars and he sees how caterpillars like become butterflies and that's in their little cocoons they're just a little butterfly all packed up and they grow up and then they're a big butterfly so in his eyes, he was like, oh, you know, this small creature was preformed before it came an adult. So humans are obviously the same in that way. 
which is obviously not how it works. No, no. Yeah. No. From here, many scientists began to study embryology, like by looking at baby animal embryos through many stages of development. This has been noted to occur in Europe, but also as well as in Chinese and Indian texts that noted how humans developed over time. And we're not going to get into human development um, or like embryology specifically, but I just wanted to point out that the scientific community like could not figure out how an entire human with all of their organs, fingernails, eyeballs, hair, all that stuff was already preformed inside inside of a tiny sperm or egg. So they were beginning to question like yeah. this preformation thing doesn't sound that was right, true, right, you know? Like, how do people come to be? And these questions soon be, you know, evolved in the field of genetics, where scientists such as Casper Frederick Wolf proposed the idea of epigenetics, declaring that people were influenced by nature. And people like Mendel with his peas, which taught science right. so much about right, genes right. and inheritance. Once again, we're not going to get into all of that, but that, like you said, Alicia, like, how do people you know, come to terms with that their babies look like them. You know, when it's genetics popped up, those questions started to be answered. But those questions also helped discredit the idea of preformation because if people were preformed by God hundreds of years ago, then how does your child look like you? You know, obviously yeah. parents have to contribute. Somehow. But I guess like I'm a little confused and maybe they just didn't think that hard about it. Like, how did Mendel decide that there is like, you know, two sides of the Punnett square? Like one is coming from mom, one is coming from dad. If they like didn't even agree upon the fact that there's like two sets of genetics like coming in and creating life. It's a good question. Well, they knew that like somehow men and women contributed because you're just fighting about the egg and the sperm. And they also had the ideas of how. Yeah, women looking at rabbits resulted in rabbit babies. So they knew somehow that like something was going on with the two people creating life. But at the end, they couldn't really like, they didn't have any ideas of how it actually worked. So they just went back and relied on this theory that like God had created everyone in the beginning, you know, instead of having like the scientific tools to say mm. genetics is the reason kind of thing. I don't know. It gets a lot. Okay. Oh, okay. more confusing there. Okay. But so scientists basically fought over how humans were generated and many continue to study eggs and sperm. And then by the 1800s, a man by the name of Robert Hooke had discovered cells. Rudolf Virchow declared that all cells come from other cells. And Oscar Kurtwood sat down on his lab bench one day and he placed a sea urchin sperm near a little egg and witnessed with his own eyes the sperm and the egg make contact, release their nuclei, and watch in amazement as the egg and the sperm combined nuclei and became one, making Kurtwig the first scientist to report how fertilization actually occurred. And that, my friends, mm. is the very long and convoluted tale of how fertilization <laughs> was discovered. <laughs> and that's my wow. story. <laughs> Nice. Yeah. <laughs> that's the Krabby Patty that's recipe. That's Patties for me. <laughs> yes. Would you like to talk about Yay. it, Alicia? Let's talk about it. All right, everyone. Before we get started, I do want to shout out the book that I read for most of this episode. <laughs> I listened to an audiobook. Um, and I got a lot of information on it. It's a great resource for anyone who wants to learn more because he goes way more in depth than I did. 
It's called The Seeds of Life from Aristotle to Da Vinci, from shark's teeth to frog's pants, the long and strange quest to discover where babies come from. And it's by Edward Dolnick. It's a very easy read. It's not like you have to be in medical school or a scientist to understand the read. Very well written and very enjoyable and interesting. So if you want to learn more, check out that book because it was really good. All right. Thanks, Edward. Yeah, he killed it. Honestly, most articles I read were like a summary of that book. Like people really rely on Oh, that that's funny. Yeah. Okay. But wow. with that, Alicia, what are your thoughts on everything? That was a fun episode. I feel like it was very specific, but also, of course, people have spent thousands of years trying to figure out the answer to this question yes. of like, where do babies come from? So I'm not surprised that there's so much back and forth. Mm-hmm. And I think it's pretty cool that, yeah, like if you'd ask me now, I'd be like, yeah, obviously we know and we've known for a long time, yeah. but that's definitely not been the case. Right. I loved <laughs> this concept of women as a barren field. I'm just like, of course they thought yep. that. Like, yep. of course. And then like it went away for a while then it like came right back. I'm like, duh. Mm-hmm. And I also love... I love the Middle Ages. Yeah. Like they have never, they have never had a right theory come out of the Middle yep. Ages. Like no one has ever come up with anything that makes any sense. Dark time. And this is the same. <laughs> yeah. My only other comment was that I really enjoyed the Swammerdam character. <laughs> he was, he was really with it and then he was really wrong. But I, I think... His name is fun. Yes. And I think it's cool that he's a medical student. And I'm just like, look at you go. I know. I like Swammerdam too. And I think he pushed society. Like, like I said, he was theories literally changed the course of this I like this discovery. And he, you know, went yeah. for it. And one fun, one little fun thing, which has nothing to do with <laughs> the reproduction. Well, it does, but whatever. He loved his insects to the point where he would observe snails having sex, but snail sex apparently takes hours <laughs> because snails are <laughs> hermaphrodites so they have to like figure out like who's gonna be what basically and like he was invested in studying insects and how, oh like, my God. they contributed to reproduction so that like, is so funny I, I didn't know that about snail reproduction I'm kind of just imagining both of them like looking at each other and being like so do you want to be on top? <laughs> yeah, <or? exactly>. like, <laughs> so that's just fun. He, that's funny. he really studied a lot of insects and learned so much about fertilization at a time where like no one really knew what was going on. Um, you know, his discovery has led to the Ovis theory, which is huge. So really cool. True. I would say one of my favorite things I like too about the barren field theory, it makes me like think of Pandora a lot for some reason like this like idea that women are vessels Mm. and like women like are Uh, like how we talked about in the pandora many episode about like the 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 box or the chalice or whatever that pandora's box is supposed to be like is the woman and is the uterus and things like that and it's like this empty Mm -hmm. thing that is filled by the baby in society that's how i feel about the barren field i feel like they go together maybe they don't but in my mind they do which i like but yeah, and then I also love yeah. Papa New Guinea story, as I said. I think it's super interesting. Oh, yeah, you do love I that I think story. that we talk about a lot how a lot of our stories are Eurocentric because a lot of history is based yeah. around, like, or a lot of the materials on the internet to even begin with are very Eurocentric. 
And I think that theory is very interesting because it just shows that in a society that's not affected by the like the larger world and common beliefs that there are very different beliefs out there. And for them, it made total sense. They had all these ideas and they had all the explanations for why their theory was the right theory. And it's so different than every other thought at the time. So I just think that's super cool. Yeah. Yeah. And with that, I agree. Um, goes on to my one question for today, since this was a pretty long episode. So I have one like major thought I think we should talk about. And that is how, Alicia, do you think scientists own preconceptions, their own personal beliefs affected this journey to this discovery? So like, what are some themes maybe in history that led to these people's beliefs? Where do these beliefs stem from? Just like, what do you think? Why did science take so long to get here? And like, what about the scientists' own lives, I guess, affected this? I think like one major theme that I that comes up often that came up again here is like religion and yes. like how religion plays into things. And then honestly, like sexism. I think that was like a big mm-hmm. one, especially when we're thinking about spermis versus ovis. Yes. And like, even when there was like evidence that the egg maybe is like slightly more important, there were still people who theorized that the sperm was yep. like the main component. And I understand that there was not enough evidence necessarily to like truly make an argument one way or another. Mm-hmm. And that was why up until like the very end when they literally saw conception, like they saw fertilization Mm -hmm. happen was like the straw that broke the camel's back and like actually made everyone believe what we know to be true Mm -hmm. until then it was all speculation. And so, of course, like you just want to believe what you want to believe. And if you believe that the sperm is like the main component and the important part, then you're going to believe that. Yeah, I agree. Especially like, the fact that the sperm is like one, the ovus had all these like A, B, C, D is why we think eggs are the, what's going on here. And the sperm is over here like, well, sperm come from men. So obviously that must be it. Which is like you said, like so sexist. It's just the idea that was held for so long that men are superior to women. So therefore the theory that has to do with the man must be the right one, which is obviously incorrect. And, you know, led away from the right theory for a while not the obus is completely right they go they're both right together that's the whole idea yeah so it's just interesting and then i also agree with the religion part i think the whole pre-generation theory that kind of like held scientists back from discovering that babies come from their parents and that there's something within humans that comes together to create a baby like there's something about each individual person that creates a new individual baby, you know, that is created. And they were held back from that because of some religious beliefs at the time, um, which is a common theme in science for sure. Yeah. And something I was thinking about is just the fact that we come up with ideas because we don't necessarily have evidence of things to be true. Mm-hmm. And so I can't necessarily like fault the spermis or the ovis in any way because when we don't know how something happens and like have direct evidence Mm -hmm. for it even when we do people will make up things and like speculate and so they like are speculating within the realm of what they believe to be true but like a spermist 
at, at this time, there was just no clear evidence of like anything. Yeah. And so, of course, people have like relied on their faith and like relied on what they think is happening. And there's just a lot of room, especially when you don't have evidence to make up things and like have theories. Mm-hmm. And you're allowed to have theories when there's no evidence. The only issue is that like now and then even like about so many other things even when there is like hard evidence people choose not to believe it so like yeah I don't know like global warming like we know it's happening but some people believe it's not happening because they don't want to yeah. believe it so there's that the one thing I can't really reconcile or like I'd have to think about it really hard and like hear more of the history mm-hmm. is how people like people who are religious in the past like understood where Jesus came from because I know that like there's like immaculate conception or whatever mm-hmm. is like how he was like put into Mary's yeah. womb but like I'm not gonna think about it too hard but I just think like it's a good question now people just kind of believe like oh you know he was like immaculately conceived but like he is a product of like Joseph and Mary like together so I just wonder when that paradigm shifted yeah. and like kind of when they started saying that because people were religious before they understood how babies were made and people are still religious now so that's like one thing that I'm like oh I wonder how they changed their story like the story somehow changed in all these millennia and I'm like curious as to how it did yeah that's a good point I don't know especially because like the idea of Jesus being the son of God is the root of an entire religion so I don't know that's interesting I didn't think about that there's a lot of things yeah, that doesn't know. make sense. But I agree with the idea that like people were just doing with what they had. Even today, like when scientists come up with a hypothesis, they're saying, I think this is happening. I don't know why, but this is why I think it's going to happen. And I'm going to do an experiment to prove it, you know? And they just go on their own mm-hmm. personal knowledge and the evidence that has been shown before them. And they, you know, try to come up with something else from that, which is kind of what they were doing back then. They were just, of course, a little bit off, but that's okay. That's why we're talking about it and how it leads to today. I think women are incredible in the fact that women do obviously contribute to how babies are made. Men do too. The ovus and the spermis are right because they both contribute to how babies are made. But I do think women are not a barren field, obviously. They contribute so much. Pregnancy is amazing. Women literally house babies that become real people and it's crazy and beautiful. And that's why Alicia and I are going to be go be guys. Anyway, with that, <laughs> yes, with that, um, if you want to learn more about fun history topics like this and much more that we talk about, go ahead and subscribe to our podcast on whatever your favorite podcasting app is. And you can also leave us a rating and review if you love us. And Apple Podcasts is, is a great place to do that. Yes. And you can follow us on social media. Like we said, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, lots of fun places. And we have been posting more. So yeah. you should definitely check us out. Find out more about what we do behind the scenes and check out our website for more information, show notes, sources, merch. It's a fun brand new website. And so it's definitely worth checking out. That's from skirtstoscrubs.com. And lastly, here is to the women who fought for us to be where we are today. And may we do the same for those who come after us. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next time. See you next time. Bye.